this morning is Palm Sunday, as uh, Pastor Sam let us know, and it's a significant morning. Last um, week, I was driving my Life Group girls to Life Group, and we're having fat chats in the car, as we always do, and they were chatting about Palm Sunday, and they asked, you know, what is Palm Sunday? And one of the little girls replied, it's the Sunday about leaves. It's like, close, but not quite, nearly there, nearly there. So um, yes, it is a very significant Sunday in our calendar. We see Palm Sunday um, depicted in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us about Palm Sunday. And scholars tell us that there are really only a few moments in Jesus' life that are recorded in all of these Gospels. And so we know this is a significant moment. And so we're going to do something a little bit out of the box this morning. I've actually broken up my message into four chapters. Um, And so chapter one is called Fabric, Not Thread. And we're going to look at, am I in the wrong spot? (laughs) You think this is a safe space? (laughs) Um, We're going to look at the um, overarching fabric of our story. I like to think of the Bible as an interwoven fabric designed just for us to know more about God. It's his word. And so because this chapter is going to take a little bit of a wander down memory lane, I thought, what better way to do that than through a story and some song? So, you ready? Jared's going to play for us and I'm going to read. Okay. So every story has a beginning and our story begins with a creating God. It is here that we meet our triune God, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. From the beginning of time, God has been speaking, always calling out to us, inviting us, and assuring us of his love. Before I spoke a word, you singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathing your life into me. have been so, so kind to me. Every story has a problem, and our problem is sin. Adam and Eve attempted to become like God and fell into physical and spiritual death. Humankind was separated from their creator. Yet in mercy, God sacrificed an animal and made a covering for the man and woman. This was an indicator of what was to come forgiveness and righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, You paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. For many years, God spoke through his prophets and encouraged the people to return to him and live faithful lives. 
Many scholars believe Daniel 9 predicts an exact timeline of Jesus' life and death. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king, the messianic king, is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and unassuming, in submission to the will of the Father, and riding on a donkey, upon a colt. Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. And in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, we see the prophet Nathan tell King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down in death with your fathers and ancestors, I will raise up your descendant after you, who shall be born to you, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who shall build a house for my name and my presence, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. For hundreds of years, the people hoped that the prophet's words would come true. rose to power and within God's people differences in beliefs grew. Over those years their expectations built. Would the hero be a military ruler? Would he be a political king? They longed for God to send the promised Messiah, the hero, to save his people. During these years God's people, the Jews, upheld their religious traditions. Back then when the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life, Jews would go to the temple at pilgrim festivals to make sacrifices to God. To this day, Jews celebrate their liberation from slavery in Egypt at the Passover festival. A big focus of this celebration was the Passover sacrifice, which is typically a lamb. Historians estimate that over a million people went to Jerusalem each year to celebrate the Passover, and in accordance with their religious traditions, it would have been a Sunday when the Jews were choosing their lambs for their Passover sacrifice. Every story has a hero, and our hero's name is Jesus. In the midst of the busyness of a Sunday getting ready for the Passover festival, the Jews met their king, and we meet our hero. One by one, the multitude of prophecies rang true. Just as was prophesied, Matthew 1 tells us that King David is in Jesus' genealogy, and Luke 1 tells us that Mary, a virgin, was Jesus' mum. Just as was prophesied on this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey at the very time the Passover lambs were being chosen. Just as was prophesied by John the Baptist in John 1.30, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, the Oh, we chase me down, fight still now. 
prophecy fulfilled, too many to share today. With intricate detail, each thread was purposely woven for hundreds of years to create a marvelous fabric. And so we end chapter one with a revelation, an aha moment. We end chapter one realizing that the overarching fabric of our story is this. John 3:16. God so loved us from the beginning of time that through all our sin, he still gave his one and only son so that we might have relationship with him forever. And as we turn the page to chapter two, we zoom in on this intricate fabric to a single thread. You see, whilst the fabric is awe-inspiring, the thread is tear-jerking. In chapter two, we intersect Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and witness a miracle. In Mark 10, 46 to 52, we read the story of Bartimaeus, a beggar on the side of the road meeting Jesus. And instead of reading you the story, we've prepared a video, so please turn to the screens. I spent most of my life living on the streets. My father was born blind and so was I. I used to sit on a busy road and just hope someone would stop and help me. See, most people didn't even want anything to do with me. But I needed them to stop because they gave me food and water and even blankets. I, the days leading up to that day were always the same. Just sitting on that road and hoping someone would stop and see. was a lot of footsteps, so much noise. People were pushing past me, I felt trapped. Then I heard somebody say that it was Jesus in Nazareth. I'd heard of this guy, I knew he could help. So I called out, I said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I was told to be quiet. But I'd been blind my whole life, and this was my chance. So I ignored those people, and I shouted louder, Jesus! pulled by my arm. Someone beside me said, take courage, he is calling for you. And then I heard him speak. He said to me, what do you want me to do for you? I said to him, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And he said, go, your faith has made you well. I looked up and I could see Jesus. I could see him. I could see I looked around at all the people and not one of them had stopped to help me. But he had stopped. Jesus had stopped for me, a blind beggar. So I followed him. Can you imagine it? On that busy road from Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. The historians told us over a million people would have been making that pilgrimage journey. And there he was, a blind beggar on the side of the road, and Jesus stops and heals him. And there are four main things that we can learn from Bartimaeus' story. The first one is to exercise our faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that now faith is the assurance, the title deed, confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of their reality. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. Historians tell us that Bartimaeus would have been a regular fixture on the side of the road. 
He would have been there day in, day out, calling out for generosity. But in that moment, when he called out and declared, Son of David, have mercy on me, he was outworking the prophecy. He was declaring, this is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And remember, he wouldn't have seen Jesus. He wouldn't have seen any of the miracles that Jesus had been made. It's likely he had never been near Jesus before. And, that yet, and yet there he was, exercising his faith. Number two is that even when the naysayers nay, we need to exercise our faith. Mark 10:48 tells us, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. I love that. He shouted all the more. You know, a bit of brutal honesty for your church. If you are truly going to have Hebrews 11 faith, if you are truly going to believe to be real that which cannot be physically seen, there are going to be naysayers. There are. You know, I work at a law firm and um, one of my colleagues is a law student at QUT and they're doing an assignment at the moment about um, the assisted suicide legislation. It's already in Victoria and there's um, conversations about it in Queensland and other states. And we were talking about this at work and offering forward different perspectives. And I offered two perspectives and they were really different. And the first perspective was um, one of Ben and my dear, dear family member. And he is seriously looking at assisted suicide as a way to end his pain and his fear. And the second perspective was this, that as a Christian, I believe that we have hope right until the very end. In fact, I believe that even in death, there's still hope because we have an eternity with Jesus. And one of my colleagues said to me, oh, well, I guess your family member is just a little bit more realistic. I went, no, no, I'm realistic. I just know the truth. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do or who they are. What actually matters is how we respond. And that even when the naysayers nay, we exercise our faith. And the third one is that even when Jesus calls us from our comfort zone, we need to exercise our faith. You know, that moment where Bartimaeus flings aside his cloak, likely his only possession or one of few possessions that he had, flings it aside, walks through the crowd towards Jesus in expectation for his miracle. In that moment, we see a man who was not yet healed. He could not see, and yet he's willing to cast aside everything that he owns, walk through the very crowd that condemned, condemned him, and stand before Jesus requesting to be healed. The weight of this image is confronting. Will you say yes before you have your answer? Will you go beyond your comfort zone before you know the outcome? Will you throw away the old before you have even seen what the new looks like? And number four, even when we receive our miracle, we need to exercise our faith. We see that the miracle happens. We saw it so beautifully depicted on that video. The miracle happens. Blind Bartimaeus is healed and it's a moment of celebration. But the awesome thing about our God is that it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. You know, Jesus' language is this. Be healed and go. Be healed and go. Here is a man, Bartimaeus, who's lived a life on the sidelines, on the side of the road begging, and Jesus is inviting him to join in. As victories are waged and won in your life, don't shrink back to the sidelines. Don't 
excuse yourself from the race. Don't allow yourself to return back to old thinking, old habits, and old language. Exercise your faith and go. And so chapter two, thread, not fabric, our story. Every thread of the fabric of our story points to a God who is people-oriented. In the midst of his journey, his task of traveling to Jerusalem, the busyness and loudness of the crowd, Jesus stops, sees the one, and cares for him. And so we end chapter two with another revelation, another aha moment. We end chapter two realizing that every thread in the fabric of our story is this. John 3, 16. For God so loved you from the very beginning of time that he sent his one and only son so that you might have relationship with him forever. And so now we turn to chapter three, the triumphal entry, the moment we are here to celebrate on Palm Sunday. And we see that this is the moment where the Jews recognize Jesus as their Messiah. So let's read together John 12, 12 to 19. The next day when the large crowd who had come to the Passover feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and homage to him as king and went out to meet him. And they began shouting and kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed, celebrated, praised is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written in scripture, do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand the meaning of these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified and exalted, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to tell people about him. For this reason, the crowd went to meet him because they had heard that he had performed this miraculous sign. And Mark 11 says it like this, and many people spread their coats on the road as an act of tribute and homage before the new king. And others scattered a layer of leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields, honoring him as Messiah. Those who went in front and those who were following him were shouting in joy and praise. Hosanna, save, I pray. Blessed, praised, glorified is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the victorious moment where they laid the palm leaves before Jesus and celebrated his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And there's a few things that we need to understand to really conceptualize this chapter to really conceptualize this moment in history. And the first thing is that there was a sense of desperation. Remember in chapter one, we were talking about how the people for years and years had held on to these prophecies. They were desperate for their king. They were desperate for their Messiah. And they were thinking, would he be a military ruler? Would he be a political king? What would he look like? Who is he? And so in this moment, we see the crowd break out into a chant. Historians tell us that it's likely that the Jews would have been used to this sort of celebration. They would have, the crowd in front would have said the one statement and the crowd behind would have responded. And so in feverish exultation, they would have been going backwards and forwards in one voice shouting out, Jesus, save us. Jesus, help us. Hosanna literally is formed out of two Jewish words, Hebrew words. 
Hoshna, which means save me, and Na, which adds a sense of urgency. They're literally saying, save us, save us. The scholars call this the messianic fever. Can you imagine in your favorite sporting team as they kick that winning goal or as they score that try and the stadium erupts in fever pitch excitement? That is what we're talking about in this moment. We also need to understand that they were recognizing Jesus as king through Jewish custom. And this is really important. Hosanna was a special, special word. It was reserved for God, not for man. It was a Hebrew word to express a deep worship and praise. And, Bible and the Bible and historians tell us that palm branches symbolize goodness, well-being, and victory. We see that King Solomon carved palm branches into the temple walls. And Revelation tells us that every nation will stand before Jesus with a palm branch signifying victory and honor. The fact that there were masses of people shouting Hosanna and laying palm branches indicates that they truly believed that he was the anointed Messiah. Otherwise, what they were doing would have been considered blasphemy. And we see this being questioned in Luke 19. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for shouting these messianic praises. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these people keep silent, the stones will cry out in praise. The other thing we need to understand is that the people around this celebration probably didn't get it. We can see that throughout history, Romans were known for their celebration, for their outlandish antics. When a Roman general would come back from war victorious, he would parade into the city. He would have had chariots and stallions and the people would follow screaming his name. He would parade the prisoners of war and his spoils of war before the people and they would be taken into an arena where the prisoners would fight to the death or fight against animals to the death. This was the Roman triumphal entry. And then we look at our triumphal entry and we see our Jesus on a donkey with palm branches and cloaks looking like any ordinary man. It's safe to say they probably didn't get it. And the last thing that we need to understand is that the believers probably didn't get it either. Luke 19 says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it and the spiritual ignorance of its people, saying, If only you had known on this day of salvation, even you, the things which make for peace and on which peace depends, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. See, the crowd definitely wanted Jesus to be king. They exalted him as their king, as their Messiah, the hero of their story. But they wanted a hero on their own terms. They wanted the military ruler, the political coup. And we see that a crowd just days later actually condemned Jesus to death on a cross. And so we end chapter 3 with a revelation, another aha moment. As the multitudes traveled with Jesus to celebrate the Passover, little did they know that they were accompanying the Passover lamb himself. Jesus entered Jerusalem on this day, Palm Sunday, offering himself as the final sacrifice, the lamb of God, the final and complete offering to cover our sin. And so we end chapter three, the pinnacle of the Sunday morning message, Palm Sunday, 
and we realise that the pinnacle of our story is this, John 3.16. For God so loved you from the beginning of time that he gave his one and only son so that you could have relationship with him forever. And so we come to the final chapter of today's message, chapter four, and I've called it the new order because every story has an effect, an impact. And contrary to popular belief, our story is not limiting. It doesn't limit us. In fact, the story of Jesus, our story, propels us into freedom, propels us into a new life living in the fullness of God. After entering Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple. In chapter one, we saw that the temple was the center of Jewish culture. And so it's really significant that Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, went to the temple where the sacrifices were being made. And like most religions, the Jewish um, faith was made up of, very, of quite a few subgroups. And the most common subgroup that we see are the Pharisees. Um, if you've read the Gospels, you can see the Pharisees are given quite a bad rap because they often oppose Jesus and they often question him. And this is because the Pharisees upheld this really strict purity code. You see, they were actually quite liberal in the sense that they believed that every one of God's people could have access to holiness in God. But to do so, you had to uphold the strict purity code. And the sacrifices to God were central to this purity code. And the Pharisees were extremely vocal and opinionated and opportunistic about these sacrifices. You know, for example, we see that markets are created in the temple. And um, these markets were really about convenience. You see, Judea was under Roman rule at the time, which means that they used Roman currency to make their day-to-day -day trading. And so then when they would go to the temple to make sacrifices, the law stated Jewish currency was to be used. And so the people would need to exchange their Roman currency for Jewish currency. And so, out of convenience, out pops a market for currency conversion. And then we see that Jewish law dictates that sacrifices needed to be made, and these sacrifices needed to be made with animals. And as we mentioned in chapter one, a lot of these festivals were pilgrim festivals, which meant that the Jews traveled far to get there. And so again, out of convenience, a marketplace pops up and the Jewish people are able to purchase their sacrifices in the temple. And of course, as is human nature, the market owners make a bit of profit along the way. And it's not hard to see how this could happen. It really isn't. The Pharisees had good intentions, but they were just so focused on their religious rituals. On one hand, they wanted people to be holy, but on the other hand, they made it so difficult for that to happen. And it breaks my heart because you realize that there is a human cost involved in Pharisaic behavior. So let's look to the screen and watch our second video. My husband's been to Jerusalem and the temple many times. I've only been once, last year. The temple was beautiful. Being able to worship God in his temple was an honor. There were a few things that I didn't expect. It was so noisy, and not with music and song. It was like a marketplace. People were hustling and bustling around, there were stalls set up, people were haggling over prices, animals were making noise. It was distracting. 
My husband and I brought an offering of money and a dove to sacrifice. When I went to give our offering, I was told only temple money is acceptable. So I went to a store to change the money. I then realized why people were haggling. The cost in changing our money was phenomenal. And there was a big commotion about the dove we bought. A priest told my husband that the dove wasn't acceptable because it had a mark on its eyelid. Its eyelid. So my husband ended up having to buy another animal from one of the stores. It cost a lot. A lot more than normal. The priests do seem to make a fairly large profit from these exchanges. And from memory, God's law just isn't that strict. Matthew 21, 12 to 13. And Jesus entered the temple grounds and drove out with force all who were buying and selling birds and animals for sacrifice in the temple area. And he turned over the tables of the money changers who made a profit, exchanging foreign money for temple coinage, and the chairs of those who were selling doves for sacrifice. And Jesus said to them, It is written in scripture, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Church, I want to speak to you for a moment because this Pharisaic behavior does have a human cost. And we do need to be a church family that makes sure that we shake off convenience, that we make sure that our good intentions have good follow through, that we don't just want to share the good news, but we actually make it really easy for people to get to know God. The overarching fabric of our story every thread woven in is this jesus is the hero of our story he entered history to redeem you jesus is the son of god who died for our sins and rose again he the new order means that you have complete access to the fullness of a relationship with god hebrews 10 puts it like this every priest goes to work at the altar each day and offers the same old sacrifices year in and year out and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for our sins and that was it. Then he sat right down beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. And the Holy Spirit confirms this. This new plan I'm making with Israel isn't going to be written on paper, isn't going to be chiseled in stone. This time, I'm writing out the plan in them, carving it on the lining of their hearts. He concludes, I'll forever wipe the slate clean of their sins. Once their sins are taken care of for good, there's no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. So friends, we can now without hesitation walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. So let's do it. Full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. And so as we end chapter four and we close the message, I really do pray that you're wrestling with revelation and that you're processing your aha moments. Because on this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem and fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. 
He offered himself as the final sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, and offered us forgiveness and righteousness.